really does seem like there's a societal pressure on people to, you know, want to advance into positions of leadership, even if it may not be what's best for them. Uh, Marcus, Bu- Marcus Buckingham writes beautifully about strengths and weaknesses. And I'll, I'll, I'll close off with this, this idea that strengths are not necessarily things we're good at. Strengths are those things that after we finish doing them, they leave us feeling strong. And weaknesses aren't those things that we're bad at. Those, they're, they're the things that, you know, after we finish doing them, leave us feeling weak. And I think under the heading of competence, we need to critically probe into whether or not this person is leaning into a strength that energizes them or leaning into a weakness. They may look good at it. They may be perceived as good at it, but it could deplete them. And I think that's a real opportunity to have a, a, an honest, crucial conversation in that you know, realm of competence. Hi, my name is Nathan Baumeister, and you're listening to Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, a podcast where executives from the world of finance and technology share the stories of how they got where they are and the decisions that made them who they are. I'm looking for hidden moments of truth and sacrifice, wisdom and folly, and what it's like to navigate the treacherous waters at the helm of a growing company. I want to do all that so that together we can learn from their journey and use that insight personally and professionally. In episode eight, my guest is Tim Hamilton, founder and CEO of Praxin. Tim has the rare distinction of holding the title of CEO since he was 16, when he first started building websites for businesses. In the years since, he's led his team through many transformations, partnerships, and industry changes. Today, Praxin is helping shape digital customer experiences for a range of high-profile companies in financial services. What Tim doesn't have is a chip on his shoulder. His humility, teachability, and deep compassion sets him apart. In a world obsessed with young, hotshot CEOs who are hell-bent on remaking the world, this Eagle Scout from South Africa has a lot to say about integrity, perpetual learning, and the opportunity that comes with taking responsibility for problems. Tim may not have started his career at the bottom of the org chart, but he's one of the most dedicated servant leaders I've ever met. Get ready to learn from a man who embodies what Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief is all about. Well, Tim, I am so grateful that you're willing to join us today for Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much, Nathan, for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. You know, uh, we've had the opportunity to know each other for the last several years as we've uh, worked in the industry together. and. I will say that my conversations with you always leave me with bits of wisdom and thought that I had never had before. And so this is a special treat, I think, for myself, but also for everybody that listens to Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, because there are very few people in this world that I know that are so thoughtful and intentional about how they lead, about how they think about things. And uh, you know, I just couldn't be more excited. Oh, Nathan, that is so kind of you. Thank you. It, it's a delight for me to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and the feeling is mutual. I can't wait to get into it. Awesome. So one of the things that I have found to be very helpful as we dive into what makes a leader who they are and from there, what we can learn from them is to rewind the clock all the way back to you know how your life started and what were some of those formative experiences that you've run into early on in your life 
it's not surprising to me that many of our guests, even though we are we haven't recorded that many episodes at this point, but many of our guests are immigrants, and your story is no different. So I would just ask, kind of, just to get started, as you think on your childhood and maybe some of those experiences of moving from one country to another. Now that you can look back, what are some of the things that you might have learned from that experience? Yeah, for sure. Well, as you say, I am an immigrant. <clears throat> I was born in South Africa, Johannesburg, and I grew up in Durban on the East Coast. And um, my dad worked in oil and gas. And when I was 11 years old, we got this just once in a lifetime, lifetime opportunity to move across the world and relocate to Houston, Texas. And um, that was an extraordinary opportunity for me and my family. And it was also a really challenging transition. Both were true. And it took a good three or four years for Houston to feel like home. It was jarring and exciting. It was full of opportunity, uh, packed with new lessons. But it was, it was also very difficult to adapt to a new culture, um, to learn the new norms, to, to fit in. You know, silly examples, you know, growing up as a kid in South Africa, I played cricket and rugby and tennis. And, uh, you know, in Houston, I'd, I had never seen a football game, uh, didn't know anything about baseball. And so, you know, to this day, my team makes fun of me when, uh, when a, uh, a sports metaphor gets thrown around, they, they have to break it down to me, you know, in, in first principles, um, which is just a, you know, a bit of fun that we have with each other. But looking back, I think the thing that that move gave me is adaptability. I'll never forget, you know, 11, 12 years old, rehearsing an American accent, <clears throat> drilling that into myself so that I could assimilate. Um, middle school is brutal just about for, for anybody. I think, you know, very, very few people had just an, you know, an amazing 10 out of 10 experience <laughs> at middle school. It's Most a hard of time us. of life. <laughs> and one of the strategies I employed was to just, you know, fit in to the best of my ability to, to learn that American accent and, and study up on the norms and uh, mores. And, um, that was that was one thing, one muscle I built early. And turns out being adaptable is a very important muscle to have in consulting. Today, I run an IT consulting firm, and so that has served me well. I had another experience early on that was really formative for me. Um, I'll never forget, we had this, uh, we, we lived in a community, and this wonderful couple, Betson Cowboy Davis, uh, he ran a law firm, and she was a fine artist. They came over with food, and they welcomed us to the neighborhood. And invited us over to their house. And I was 12, and uh, Cowboy uh, noticed that I was on his wife's computer in, you know, with a Microsoft DOS prompt open. And I'd open up QBasic, and I'd, I was writing myself a little QBasic game while my mom and dad caught up with Bets and Cowboy. And uh, he was surprised to see this, you know, 12 year old kid uh, who knew what he was doing on a, a you know, IBM compatible computer. And he yep. was like, Can you tutor me and my wife on this thing? And that was my first, that was my first intro to business. I, I, you know, started getting paid to tutor bets and eventually word of mouth spread. And I, I was tutoring a bunch of retirees throughout the, the neighborhood. And whereas kids in school found my accent, uh, and my mannerisms, my idiosyncrasies, my, my manners, you know, they, they found that as a, a thing to make fun of. Older adults and retirees that started hiring me to tutor them found them to be endearing. And that, that was a lifeline to me, an absolute mm -hmm. lifeline to me as a sensitive kid who, you know, who just wanted to fit in and, and do good uh, to have that positive reinforcement at the very start of my entrepreneurial journey was, I think, an absolute game changer without which I, I'm not sure I would have you know, gotten to where I am today. Yeah, that's so cool. 
You know, this idea of starting business young, that theme kind of continued for you a little bit, didn't it? <laughs> it did. I, I, as I mentioned, I played tennis and uh, in high school, my uh, junior year, uh, the high school tennis coach, Jesse Cooper, asked the team, does anyone know how to make a poster? I want to promote a pro-am tennis tournament in Houston and eventually build a tennis academy. And uh, I'm not proud to admit it, um, but I had a pirated copy of Adobe Photoshop. <laughs> and I, I started learning and teaching myself. And um, there was this website back in 1998 that taught you all sorts of tips and tricks about Photoshop. I'd been taking tutorials from it. I think it was called Designs by Mark. So I raised my hand. Jesse hired me. He paid me $75. And I thought I hit the absolute goldmine. I, I spent like 300 hours uh, designing the world's <laughs> worst poster. And uh, I mean, that thing was chock full of lens flares and super cheesy graphics, words set on fire. And this over-the-top photo of Jesse's face emerging from the universe. This was going to be the most epic tennis tournament anyone had ever experienced. And <laughs> um, I'm saying that all the time in cheek, obviously, but incredibly, people showed up. And, uh, and his tennis academy launched, and he came to me then. He said, well, do you know how to make a website? That worked out pretty well. And without missing a beat, I said, absolutely. But the problem was, y'all, I had no idea. Uh, but I drove, I drove to Barnes & Noble, and I got a book, uh, Teach Yourself HTML in 24 Hours. And I, I got to it. Now, it took me a hell of a lot longer than 24 hours to make my way through that book. I'm, um, I'm sure. <laughs> But I got Jesse's website live and, you know, someone who knew, knew how to make a website for a small business in 1998, that was in high demand back then. From teaching retirees to wrangle their IBM computers to building websites in his high school bedroom, Tim clearly has the hacker's affinity for code creativity. He also grasps from an early age the importance of saying yes to opportunity and figuring out the details along the way. Later in the episode, you'll hear about a situation where Tim said yes and things didn't go so well. But that's the tension of being an entrepreneur, learning the difference between saying yes to everything and what you can actually deliver on. And so word of mouth spread quickly and I was able to build a business, basically building you know small business websites and doing digital marketing from then on. And uh, the business has, has morphed and evolved into, you know, in, in many, many different directions. I can give you a, a, an update on how it's evolved, but that's how I got my start. Yeah. I think it, I, I mean, how many 16 year olds uh, start a business like this, but then what's fascinating is, is quite literally, it's the same business that you're still running today, isn't it? I mean, I know that there's been changes yeah. of names and such, but, but, but really yeah, that's continuously right. been, the founder and CEO of a business since 16. I just have to ask, what is there anything that you can pinpoint that gave you this level of curiosity, this level of, oh, I can figure anything out at such a young age that made you kind of look at these opportunities and and seize them? Because I don't I, I work with a bunch of uh, a bunch of youth through uh, different activities. Um, outside of work. And I can see the spark in many of these individuals, but it's something that's being developed that I don't think is probably going to come to fruition until their 20s or 30s, maybe even their 40s. Whereas you had that when you were 16. Yeah, you know, I, reflecting on it, it, it's a fascinating question of nature versus nurture. I think a good amount of it was nature. 
Um, I think my parents baffled at it. My dad didn't quite know what to do with me. My dad's a chemical engineer. My mom's a fine artist. And, you know, in that, in that double helix, I've got a bit of both. I've always had a real appreciation for a love for the human factors of design, visual design, user experience, architecture, the way things feel. And I've always been fascinated by how to put them together. And, um, gosh, I just had so many amazing experiences. Uh, like, Boy Scouts was a big part of my, my upbringing. I'm an Eagle Scout, and growing up in the Boy Scouts in South Africa was also very different than it was in Houston. Um, you know, we, I, I'll never forget getting, getting caught in quicksand and having to rescue myself, you know, thinking nice. care, carefully through that process and, you know, getting through that. I mean, that, it just it makes me think of this quote, adversity introduces a man to himself. I think that was Albert Einstein. And I, I honestly think that adversity has played a critical role in my formation just again and again and again and again when you know you you get knocked down there's something strangely motivating about that i'm not i'm not sure if you've sensed that or felt it but when you suffer a huge setback initially there's a shock you're overwhelmed by the loss but then also being on the ground you know getting getting your senses back it's also strangely motivating and there that feels relevant somehow some way and uh Gosh, I just loved, I loved computers. I mean, frankly, from, from, from the very beginning, I just always wanted to be a programmer. I knew that since the age of eight or nine. And mm-hmm. so this was an opportunity for me to just jump in and say, heck yeah, let's do this. Yeah. So the, the next question that comes to me, so you're 16, you started your own business and building websites. You're still running it today. However, you still made the determination and decision to continue through high school, as well as continue through uh, university collegiate level learning. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think our society is struggling with right now is what is the role of education, especially, you know, formal education versus informal education, um, costs rising and all those different types of things. You hear these stories of, you know, college dropouts that then, you know, build these billion dollar companies I would say those are typically the exceptions, not the rule. But obviously, we love looking at those exceptions and being like, maybe that's the path to success. So I'm curious, what role did this formal education have in the decision-making of continuing down that path while you actually already had a business that was growing and thriving? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I got a lot from school growing up. Um, and I, I was very fortunate in high school to go to a Jesuit school in Houston and if it's interesting, we can come back to that. I, I learned I learned one of the most important lessons in that high school about trust. But first, okay. before you go into the story, um, I'm I'm familiar with uh, the Jesuit line of thinking, philosophy, how you tackle issues, and stuff like that. But I'm not sure if that's a generally known thing. So maybe just a really small introduction of what it means to be going to a Jesuit school, and then share the story that, that you have. Because even the fact that you went to a Jesuit school if you know what that means, is, is interesting in of itself. That's a fantastic question. Yeah. So uh, uh, Jesuits are an order of priests within the Catholic faith, and um, they are big, big, big into um, uh, education, pedagogy, and, and the Socratic method. They're also, they practice a radical form of acceptance. It's an interfaith uh, community. And so I went to school with with um, kids from all sorts of faiths, and uh, we we studied theology specifically a lot of catholicism but we also studied it broadly and then um we 
we had a very rigorous um, teaching method. It was incredibly competitive and um, at the same time, very supportive. There was this incredible integration between uh, academic rigor and competitiveness, as well as social emotional learning. The administrators at the school, the teachers of the school um, were absolutely committed to the formation of, um, of the student as a whole. It was an all boys school. And so their mission was to form men in service to others and to pursue the greater good for all. And that, um, that very much is a, is a Jesuit cultural pillar. Um, that's how I would describe it. And, you know, I, I'll never forget. There was one teacher in particular, Mr. Mason. He was my English uh, teacher, um, sophomore year. And I'm not proud to admit it, you guys, but we had, we had my class in 2002 had a real problem with cheating. Um, mm. the, the academic standards were so high and we felt so much pressure to perform that a lot of us, you know, we, we found, we found ways through the system and, you know, the, the teachers would routinely pop quizzes on us unexpectedly. And it would send a shockwave through the entire school. Like, Oh my gosh, we've got to, you know, pop quiz with, um, Mrs. Petrushevitz's, you know, class in, in, uh, Catholic morality. And, you know, as one class would come out that, you know, share the questions on the quiz with the next class going in. And again, I, I cringe to share that story because I'm not proud of it. And, you know, it, it, as a class, we were violating our honor code, the one that we all signed up to. Now, um, Mr. Mason came in the first day after winter break and he, he, he let us all file into the class and he, he very, um, earnestly walked in, closed the door behind him. And he, he addressed us from the front of the class. He said, now you all know your reputation for cheating in this class. And um, you've gotten berated by administrators and teachers. You've been uh, taken to task for this as a problem. You all know that you're violating the code of honor. Um, however, I think we've been letting you down as teachers. I think it's us who've been failing you and not the other way around. Now, I'm going to take a radically different approach to proctoring exams. Whereas my colleagues, other teachers have been heightening or increasing their standards, proctoring more closely, changing quizzes between sessions. I'm going to do the exact opposite. And here's why. It's because I don't think uh, we as teachers and administrators have given you the trust and faith to live up to the honor code that you agree to. And I think that trust is the missing ingredient because I don't think you want to cheat. I think you know that you're better than that. I think the problem is you don't feel like we believe in you. And so I will not be proctoring exams this semester. You'll be free to cheat as much as you want. I will not be in the room. And today is our first exam. You all have signed, assigned reading over the holidays, and today is an exam to, to, to probe into that. And so he went through, and he <clears throat> slowly passed out the papers for the test, walked up to the front of class, collected his suitcase, and uh, walked out. Shut the door, and not, not a thing could be heard. Um, not, not, a, not a single word was said. And uh, as an entire class, we each completed our exams without saying a thing to each other. Um, walked them to the front of the class, dropped them off on his desk and walked out. out. And um, it was a profound experience for me in the power of trust and um, organizing the collective actions of a group and, and motivating them to, to perform at their best fr from a set of values that they signed up to. I take that story with me everywhere I go. I, I, uh, for me, trust in those that you lead is a precondition to anything else. And that's one of those lifelong lessons I learned at Strict Jesuit from Mr. Mason that, you know, I'll, I'll take to the grave with me. Well, I'm going to take that one to the grave with me now, too. <laughs> it's, a, a, it's a good one. What a, what, a, what a great story and what a great example of leadership um, in a big way. 
I have to ask though, I, uh, I lean on trust a lot as well. One of my favorite mantras is, is let leaders lead, right? What, why do I have a leader if I'm not going to let them lead? Um, but sometimes some people look at that and say it's naive and that the chances that you're going to be taken advantage of at some times in your life, um, increases. And I know that as you look across the years that you've been running your company, that that has happened. So I'm curious, just the balance between extending that trust while still knowing that every once in a while, it's not going to be lived up to. And how do you kind of deal with some of that dichotomy and still be willing to believe in people, even when a few times with some individuals that might not happen? Well, yeah, one of my favorite authors wrote a book called Turn the Ship Around. He's a retired naval captain called David Marquet, Captain David Marquet. And his model of leadership talks a lot about in order to do what you're describing, Nathan, to trust and empower, you've got to have two critical ingredients, competence and clarity. And I think as leaders, we've got to continuously interrogate to what extent are we providing clarity around what the future state looks like, what success looks like, what's expected short-term, medium-term, and long-term. And there's there's a bunch of different practices, whether they're rituals or uh, gestures, meetings, crucial conversations, tokens, artifacts. And we can go to the field of anthropology to source a lot of those around how do we provide our company with or organization with more clarity about what success looks like. And we've been experimenting with that for two decades. I'm endlessly fascinated by how you can express in greater and greater and greater detail of clarity and fidelity uh, what the future state looks like. That's that clarity piece. The second piece is competence. And that's that tough one for us as leaders is we've got to continuously evaluate and assess, um, do I have the, a competent leader? You know, is, is this, does this person get it? Do they want it? Do they have the capacity to do it? That comes from Attraction, uh, a book by Gino Wickman. Um, and there, there are other ways to evaluate the competence of people. But I also think it, you know, this also gets into that crucial conversations piece where we've got to, we've got to, um, I love the way that Brene Brown talks about this. We've got to um, rumble and, and yep. dare, dare greatly with the people that we report to uh, go, go into those conversations for feedback and reflection um, to express our disappointments or express what we're seeing uh, to check in with people. You got to do that with vulnerability and there's a real art to that as well. But um, I, I think that those are the, those are t- two key ingredients that we've got to have in order to have this concept of empowered leadership without, without competence, it's going to fall over. The Peter principle is going to play itself out where, where, you know, we promote people to the point of incompetence and that's not good for them. It's not good for the organization. That's a painful situation to be in. And gosh, it happens so often in technology and knowledge work uh, where we assume that because somebody is a real master at the technology, they therefore know how to manage or lead people who are technicians. And, and that can be a real fatal assumption. We, we make it again and again and again. The Peter Principle creates a powerful tension in the workplace where people desire and are encouraged to seek promotion without assessing if they actually have the skills to tackle the new role. The employee in question may even know deep down that the promotion isn't a good fit, but they operate under the assumption that they should say yes and figure it out later. There's no magical solution for this puzzle. It it requires radical honesty and empathy to navigate it well. We also need to break down the cultural stigmas around management as the end-all be-all for career development. And so there, 
I, I'm fascinated by what are the questions that you can ask to assess whether a person is a leader or whether they are a technician. It really does seem like there's a societal pressure on people to, you know, want to advance into positions of leadership, even if it may not be what's best for them. Yep. Uh, Marcus, Bu- Marcus Buckingham writes beautifully about strengths and weaknesses. And I'll, I'll, I'll close off with this, this idea that strengths are not necessarily things we're good at. Strengths are those things that after we finish doing them, they leave us feeling strong. And mm-hmm. weaknesses aren't those things that we're bad at. Those, they're, they're the things that, you know, after we finish doing them, leave us feeling weak. And I think under the heading of competence, we need to critically probe into whether or not this person is leaning into a strength that energizes them or leaning into a weakness. They may look good at it. They may be perceived as good at it, but it could deplete them. And I think that's a real opportunity to have a, a, an honest, crucial conversation in that you know realm of competence. Yeah. yeah, I love that. So as we, as since I asked the question about you know trusting in people to do things, if you have clarity of what you expect of folks and what the future holds, and you are constantly checking their competence then that naturally leads into the fact that you're also continuously having those hard, difficult, crucial conversations that are important that if either the clarity is missing or the competence isn't there, that you're you're tackling them head on. So it's not like a surprise that comes out from anywhere. Um, rather, it's something that you're constantly looking at and evaluating, not because it's a lack of trust. It's just always checking on that clarity and competence. I love that. Well said. I, there's one other thing I want to share. I learned this from a friend of mine who recently told me, Tim, you cannot solve a problem until you take responsibility for it. Um, we have six core values at Praxent. Own the outcome is one of them. I think of it as my you know, Stephen Covey core value, the uh, worldwide famous author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And his habit number one is be proactive, which is a rearticulation of this concept, which is you can't solve a problem until you take responsibility for it. It's about radical responsibility. Um, own the outcome again is our articulation of that at Praxent. And when I lean into somebody with one of these conversations, that's the most important thing. That's the number one thing I'm looking for. Um, is this person going to defend or justify? Are they going to shut down or are they, are they going to lean into the conversation and say, you know what, Tim, thank you for the feedback. It's hard to give feedback, but man, it's the only way I know how to learn. I, I, you know, I, I'm so grateful for it. And you're absolutely right. I'm going to take responsibility for that right now. That second case indicates to me, you know what, this person has a growth mindset and they're going to stick in with me and they're going to do the hard work to change behavior. But if the person deflects, defends, justifies, oh, that's a sickening feeling. This, in the pit of my stomach, I've been in that situation. I mentor people who, who are in that situation. You can't do anything with a leader who doesn't take responsibility. And so um, as people are, are advancing in their journey, thinking about whether or not to go from technician to manager, manager to leader, I think I would I would counsel them to reflect honestly on that responsibility piece. That is a critical muscle to build for anyone to step into the work of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite thing that I hear over and over again in business is, well, I don't have control over that. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. Well, yeah. then what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, a hundred. well said. That's a perfect example, right, of of someone who's not not yet able to or ready to take responsibility. Yeah. So I'm curious in those early days as you were building as you were building the company and trying to figure out who you were going to be as a leader, trying to figure out what you wanted to be as a business and growing that team. I wonder is there any adversity that kind of comes to mind that helped clarify those things for you? 
you know, I was really lucky the first seven years. <clears throat> I was building websites, e-commerce sites, um, small content management systems. Um, and and I didn't, really didn't have any failures. You know, I, I was doing all the design, or the engineering mainly. I had some design contractors and I was project managing them, selling them. But because the team size was so small, basically it was just me selling and delivering the projects and then working with a small group of contractors. And because of the nature of the work, was relatively straightforward. I, I didn't have any failures. Now, um, reflecting on that, there's a framework called the Kinevin framework, C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. It's a Welsh word, and it it has a matrix of different um, domains of complexity. You can go from a simple domain to a complicated domain to a complex domain to a chaotic domain. And uh, depending on which domain you're operating in, it, your, your practices need to evolve. So when I started my business, I was doing complicated work, basically, you know, it's fairly straightforward. And the, the best practice is to make sense of the situation, analyze it, and then, and then respond with good practice. But as I evolved the business, and I evolved outside of web design and development, digital marketing, I started taking on custom product engineering engagements, building enterprise applications for larger organizations. Mm. I had clients like the city of Houston, I took on a, uh, a almost a 200,000 URL uh, website migration for one of the largest media um, companies in the oil and gas industry. These weren't complicated projects. These were complex projects. And the best practices here um, are actually, if you think about the concept of applying a best practice, it's really inappropriate in a complex domain because before you can make sense of the situation, you've got to probe. And I didn't probe. I just, I just jumped to making sense of things and, and I therefore was operating with incomplete information and I was applying the wrong approaches, the wrong practices. And I got, I, I, I had a series of failures that, that were really, really painful between 2000 and, uh, gosh, eight and 2012. I, um, I, I launched three SaaS companies, took them to market and they all failed for different reasons. Um, I had a very large, uh, content migration project in 2009 fail uh, in a really you know challenging and painful and costly way. I, I formed a business partnership with somebody that I learned a lot from. We, we merged our companies together and that would, would ultimately go on to fail. Um, and then one of the most painful things I had to do is I had to fire my first employee. And I'd worked closely with this individual for five years and he is an extraordinary human being. One of the, one of the brightest, smartest, um, funnest people I've ever worked with. And it was devastating to, to terminate that relationship. And for this, you know, series, like wave after wave after wave of, of failures, I, I really, I look back, it was an incredible gift, but man, it was hard to go through. It was a gift though, because it taught me what I value, what is negotiable in my life and what is non-negotiable in my life. And I think that's really uh, the phase in my leadership journey where I started to understand the role of principles and values. And I, I, I put them down on paper and I started getting crystal clear on what are the non-negotiables in my life. I have a friend who said to me, you know, um, you know, their values only if you're willing to spend money or lose money to defend them. And this mm. period gave me an opportunity to really reflect deeply on that and ultimately write the six core values that now are the foundation of Praxent and then inform every decision we make. Um, and so I'm very, very grateful for that adversity, that period of, of failure. Uh, but it wasn't fun to go through at the time. Yeah, it does not sound fun to go through. I mean, <laughs> I mean, wow! Tried to launch three SaaS products and uh, 
created a partnership and didn't work out. I mean, that's a lot to work through. And I, man, I would love to hear each and every one of those stories. I'm not sure if we have time, but I would be curious if you had to pick one, if, if, if you think, if, if you're willing to just to kind of jump into and dig apart a little bit, just for us to learn from, I'd be super grateful. I can summarize a couple. Um, the three startups I launched, uh, you know, what I, what I ultimately observed in my behavior as soon as I, as soon as I launched them, I finished, finished building the product. I took it to market. I lost interest. And, um, I had, I had somebody reflect again, another mentor, um, reflect on, on that situation with me over coffee. He said, you know, Tim, growing an enterprise software company, a SaaS company is much more about go to market and sales and marketing than it is about R and D and building. Mm -hmm. And you are a builder. Here's where you can see that Tim had his own reckoning with his skill set and passions versus an ambitious objective. Launching three software startups can sound impressive, but quantity is no substitute for quality, especially if your heart isn't in the work. The world needs more people who are doing meaningful work they love, people who are entering a state of flow. This dovetails with the distinction Tim made earlier between strengths and weaknesses. I think that most people would benefit from looking for work that energizes them. It's more valuable in the long run than settling for work you can tolerate, even though it steals your joy and vitality. I'm not saying that it's easy to find work like this. I am saying it's worth the search. Um, and so you, you either need to, you know, join a SaaS company or, or join somebody who is, you know, a go-to market expert who, you know, is committed to and energized by and strengthened by that sales, marketing, and go-to market work, or, you know, or, or you should consider, you know, a firm or business a focus where you can just do nothing but building, and that's what ultimately led me to commit to consulting. Essentially, one of the times I recommitted to consulting was when I realized, oh, you know, I, I just want to do nothing but build, um, and so. Um, that was one of those Marcus Buckingham strengths versus weaknesses moments for me. Um, and the, the, uh, the business partnership one is the other one I'll summarize for you. I think, it, as I mentioned, this partner I got together with was brilliant and very, very capable. I learned a lot from him. He was a, an exquisite salesperson, a, a very strong uh, consultant himself. I learned a ton because I was young. I was in my early 20s and he taught me, he taught me an awful lot and I'm very, very grateful. But ultimately we wanted to build a different kind of organization and we thought about engineering culture differently. Now he's gone on to achieve great things. Um, but after six months, I, I had to pull the trigger and, and essentially unwind from that partnership. And that was in 2011. It was such a painful and stressful process. I basically lost everything that I built up into that point. Um, I, I lost the business that I built for 11 years. I lost all the employees that I hired. Um, I lost the office space. I, I lost everything. And wow. um, I had this opportunity to go back to the you know two employees that had gotten that had been been along with me for the, the furthest. Nick, who runs our design practice today, and Andrew, who's a technical director on the team still today. And I went to them. I said, guys, I have no guarantees for you whatsoever. I have this tiny little e-commerce website, ironically for a stress relief client. <laughs> and um, 
we, we can consume a lot of these stress relief supplements while we're building the site, but uh, I have no guarantees, but I do want to do this with you. Would you come with me and let's rebuild this business together? And we got together in my, 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 uh, my kitchen, my, my dining room, my living room. We moved into the condo and we, start, we started the business again. And that was in 2011. And it wasn't until 2015 uh, when I had an occasion to, to reflect again on the importance of business partnership. I'd met um, my now business partner, Kevin, uh, Kevin Hurwitz, who joined me in 2016. And he was just the most um, generous, um, in, uh, just organized thinker, intelligent, consultative. He was just, he is just an amazing human being. He and I started having coffee and he started referring clients to me and uh, got to the point where he was wanting to get my advice for how to you know, build a team and hire his first couple of employees. He wanted to launch a company. And I said, well, what, what would you think about joining forces? Anyway, that's how it started. And uh, I, I was terrified at the prospect of getting another business partner because I've been through this process. And uh, I read this book called Rocket Fuel, which is all about the two different types of leaders that, that form successful companies. There's the visionary and the integrator. The visionary is the leader that's more emotional, more in tune with the culture, is much more of a relationship person, is the face of the company in many cases, often the founder, but they're disorganized, they're episodic, they're ups and downs, they, they may be more sensitive, they're, um, they're not great systems and process thinkers, and they badly need an integrator to be cool, calm, collected, organized, methodical, and that's Kevin. And so we got together. It was that book, though, that really helped me to uh, do business with my fear and to ultimately accept the fact that I was being too close-minded about business partnership as a result of my failure. I was actually letting that really inhibit my perspectives on this in a destructive way. And so I'm so grateful. Kevin put up with six months of, uh, we, we hired a psychologist to do personality testing and co conflict testing. We had endless one-on-ones during that six-month period. Um, before I ultimately committed to the partnership and we made it happen. And I look back, I, that, that's a six month decision, Nathan, that should have taken me 60 seconds, but yeah. you know, such as life, I had to unlearn some habits, you know, I had to, uh, work through some professional scar tissue there to realize, you know, what, what was the right decision? I know one of the things that I've shared with a lot of founders is, um, like, they're like, should I raise money? Should I not raise money? Should I set up a board? Should I not set up a board? I'm like, look, I can't tell you whether you should raise money or not because that has to do with control of your company, control of your destiny, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll tell you this, get a board. <laughs> mm. Get a group of independent people. And a lot of it has to do with just the advice. They don't necessarily have to be on the board, but I 100% agree that having a group of individuals that you can trust that aren't in it day in and day out that can help you get outside of yourself is just invaluable uh, because look, we're all going to hope that we're not like that we don't have inherent biases in place and that we don't have blind spots, but we do. And uh, having systems and people around you to be able to help you get outside of yourself is uh, extremely helpful. So thank you for sharing that. Well said. So this journey of Praxent, I mean, starting in 16, building websites, ending up doing a lot of project management on your own, Going into a partnership and then going basically where you had to you, you you lost the business if you will and had to start all over again, bringing on a new a new partner. You know I'm familiar enough with your business to know that you had another really big transformational decision that came up in Praxin. So I was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit more as well. 
Yeah, there have been a, there's a lot of evolution, <clears throat> changing the name to Praxent in 2015, codifying our core values, uh, recommitting to consulting. Um, but perhaps one of the most um, significant was when um, we we had this incredible run. Kevin, my partner, and I, you know, we got together in 2016, and from 2016 to 2000 and um, and 19, we grew the business 400. 460%. It was just an incredible run. Wow. And we were working for some incredible clients, Cisco Foods, a Fortune 50. We worked for Kinder Morgan. Uh, we worked for Texas Mutual, the uh, one of the largest insurance carriers in uh, the state of Texas. And we had built a really nice portfolio. Um, we also had a lot of, a lot of um, startups and we had some client concentration in the portfolio where you know, a, a small number of clients accounted for an outsized amount of our revenue. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing is we, you know, had mainly, um, well, we had a, we had a, a team of 75 engineers and we'd grown uh, to this really nice, this nice level. But as I mentioned, there were real, real structural challenges. I also saw that the, the future of the industry, it was, a, it was a matured industry of product engineering firms coming not only from the U.S., but all around the world entering the United States market. And we just did not have a compelling answer to the question, well, what makes Praxent unique? What's special about Praxent? You know, we would, we would uh, talk about our people, our talents, our core values, our, you know, a bit of, but when you got a portfolio of oil and gas and logistics companies and hospitality companies, a couple in financial services, some in life sciences, you, you really can't, I don't think, um, answer that question in a way that a client or prospect will hear it. At the end of the day, when a client wants to know what's, what's unique about your consulting firm, what they're really curious about is what's your expertise? A yep. client's greatest fear is spending, spending a dollar for you to learn uh, on their dollar. They, they, they don't want to hire you to, to do a thing for the first time. They want to hire you because you've been there and done it. And when we, we took a step back, uh, we went on a partner retreat in the summer of 2019, we, we realized that while we had enjoyed a lot of success, it really felt like it, we'd kind of gotten lucky. And there wasn't a, a, a good way for us to predictably and sustainably continue to scale um, in a way that wouldn't uh, feel like it was all going to fall down like a house of cards. And we read a bunch on the topic. We hired a consultant, uh, David C. Baker, is an extraordinary leader in the space. And he worked, he worked through a, a really challenging uh, engagement with us to really challenge our thinking on this. And ultimately, uh, we were convinced that what we needed to do was to verticalize the firm and pick a single industry and just go deep in that industry. Now, that terrified me, Nathan, because for, for 19 years at that point, I had succeeded entrepreneurially by saying yes to everything, starting yep. with my tennis coach, you know? And, um, and this do you know how to like do it? I, sure I do. <laughs> exactly. You got it. And I've done that for 19 years. There was a very, very well-worn pattern. But picking a single industry now felt like I was going to put a huge big no on the brand. Um, and uh, that was terrifying. But we did... We did business on that fear and we kind of overcame it. We did a bunch of analysis, ultimately picked financial services because of um, the trends that we saw in the industry, a trend towards self-service, uh, a real a strategic role of a, of a human-centered digital experience that could do more and more and more than a brick-and-mortar uh, location or, or a branch could do to help people to serve themselves and get through those, those processes. And we saw that there was a very complex, uh, multi-layered, ecosystem of, uh, of, of, fin- of fintech providers that, that played a big role in, in the value chain in financial services and that 
really lent itself to integration work and orchestration work and cloud migration work. And so we saw the trends and we also reflected on our strengths. At that time, you know, we had, we, we had six clients in our portfolio in financial services, six referenceable clients. And we thought, you know what, that let's, it's a big bet. It's a huge leap of faith, but we see the future and we've got a starting point. Let's go, let's go in that direction. So in 2019, we, um, we took a hard turn and we, we announced boldly that, you know, Praxent was going to go in this direction and we verticalized the firm. And, uh, it was, you know, it was a huge bet, a huge investment, and ultimately it's paid off. Um, our big, hairy, audacious goal is 500 referenceable clients in financial services and to become known as the boutique mid-market consulting firm to uh, clients in banking, lending, payments, wealth management, insurance, and fintech. Bold is the right word for this. Is anyone who has worked in the industries that Tim rattled off you know that heavy regulation and bureaucracy are the dominant modes of operation. Jumping into these markets to build modern digital experiences is not a task for the faint of heart. That said, people in these industries also know that transformation is a matter of survival, not preference. You don't need to have a background in banking to see the opportunity. Institutions and companies that embrace new technology and take calculated risks will grow, while everyone else withers or gets eaten up. And we've built now an incredible team who are all uh, committed to that vision. And you know, by day, by night, getting expert, more and more expert in the systems that power insurance, banking, lending, payments, wealth management. And the incredible takeaway from this is that to become expert in a thing, I'll take a step back. Why, why become expert in a thing? In order to have a compelling answer to the question, what makes you different in a client centered mm-hmm. way? Anytime I would say our people, our values, our culture, guess what? That's not about the client. Yeah, that's, that's about practicing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to have a client centered way of answering that question. And that ultimately comes down to expertise. I think that's the bottom line in consulting. And so now because of this focus, we're accumulating expertise at a rate that's, uh, much higher than 99.9% of the competition who have a generalized focus with respect to the market today. Yeah. Well, that's also an important pivot because that's when we got to meet and got to know each other is once you made that decision. So that's right. For which personally, I'm yeah, personally, <laughs> I think that's the best part of the decision was, uh, was we got to meet <laughs> <Naturally>. each other. <laughs> um, one of, one of the things that uh, I've so enjoyed about this conversation, but also in all of our conversations is Almost every time I ask you a question, you have a story and you have a book uh, that, that, that you can reference uh, that has helped you to kind of think about uh, the answer to a question or how you tackle a problem or something like that. And uh, you've been super generous throughout this whole conversation and sharing some of those, those books that have had a meaningful impact on you in certain times in your life. But I always like to ask, non-business books, because there are a lot of business books out there and a lot of recommendations out there. But I've personally gained so much talking about books that have nothing to do with business that have helped me become a better leader. So I'm curious, as you as you think about books that have had a outsized impact on you, that isn't necessarily or wouldn't be considered a business book. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners? 
You know, there's a lot to choose. I w- I'm going to have to go with Sapiens by Noah Yuval Harari. Sapiens is a story about the history of Homo sapiens um, told in the most accessible, lighthearted, humorous, uh, self-effacing way. But it's so also balanced with incredibly um, well-researched and insightful nuances and anecdotes and histories and, you know, science, that's the one. And, you know, my takeaway from that book is um, the thesis, I would say, that the author is writing about is the thing that sets us apart from other species. What is that? He's fascinated in exploring that question. And the thesis is that it's not that we're more intelligent than other species. It's not that we're better tool makers, which are theories that have been put forth. He argues that it's that we are uniquely able to orchestrate collective action in a larger group than any other species uh, on the face of the planet. We're able to get things done in larger team sizes, essentially. And he writes about Dunbar's number, which is a famous number referring to the maximum size of a primate uh, tribe. Uh, a, A group of chimpanzees can get together and get things done as a tribe up into the point of about 150. And at 150, there is a, there's a challenger to the alpha, and that all often leads the tribe to splinter into two. And uh, you can see this replicated across, uh, across you know, all sorts of different species. But somehow, some way, the human being has been able to get things done now uh, in, in a globally interconnected ecosystem of over you know, 7.5 or 8 billion, uh, working together on this thing called the globally interconnected economy, you know, with trade across, across borders. And he, he argues that we are able to do that because of story, ultimately because of narrative. He also thinks of it as ideology or mimetics like memes. It's, it's basically this idea that we're going to have shared meaning together by moving in this direction together. And, you know, democracy is, is a narrative. It's a story. You know, he argues that Religions like Christianity, for example, are you know are are doing the same exact uh, are the same performing the same exact function, and that is that's the thing that sets us apart from all other species. And I think that's fascinating. Um, it's hard not to apply that to business, but yeah. Um, yeah, that that would be my number one. I love it. Thank you for sharing that, and we'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well, so that uh, folks can uh, can get to it. So as we're, as we're wrapping up, I always have a final question I like to end with, but before doing so, just wanted to see if there was anything else that you wanted to make sure we covered today that we haven't. Oh gosh, it's just been such a pleasure. I'm, um, I, I'll say that I, I love the focus on leadership in this podcast. Um, I think what I've learned in my career, um, given that I work in technology, it's easy to, um, think that the major challenges uh, or hurdles that we've got to clear in financial services and banking are technical in nature. We talk endlessly about the legacy architectures and monolithic structures that we've got to, you know, integrate to the the ancient core systems that are running on mainframes that'll fall over if we breathe, breathe on them wrong. We talk a lot about the technology challenges, but the thing I love so much about the focus of, of your work here is that it's on leadership. I, I'm personally much more fascinated by the human factor. I think the human factor is as important as challenging, if not more challenging than the the technical challenges that plague us. 
And I don't think we're going to be able to usher in the next generation of financial services ultimately to, to do the right thing for the account holders, the policyholders, the investors that we're serving. We're not going to be able to do that unless we talk about and tackle the, the societal challenges, the human and collaborative challenges that face us and the tools we have to do that. That's leadership. So thank you for, for creating this uh, resource for people. And uh, I cannot wait to follow it going forward. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, we definitely share a, a similar vision on that. It's, it doesn't matter if you have the best strategic tactical plan that has ever been invented that is the perfect way to accomplish something. If you look behind you and there's no one there that's going to help you accomplish it, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Um, building businesses, changing industries, making a difference in the world, it's not an individual sport. It's a team sport, right? Truly. So with that, on this question of leadership, and this is how we always like to end, is from your perspective, is a leader born or is a leader made? Gosh, you know, it's hard not to think about the question of nature versus nurture uh, here. Yeah, which you, touched, which you touched on a little bit earlier, right? You know, anytime I read, I read the updated studies on this topic, it seems like more and more and more leans in the direction of, of nature. I think mm. uh, some, some recent studies have found that up to 80% of human behavior can be explained by hereditary factors. I mean, that is, that's shocking. Um, yeah, 80% is a big number. It's huge. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I do think that that research applies here. Um, as I said, there, there are just some things that I am strong at and I am weak at. And again, it, it has a lot more to do with, with what energizes me and what depletes me. Um, but while I, while I talk um, about the role of hereditary factors, I, I've also shared a lot of the formative experiences in my life as an immigrant, the role of adversity, the, the critical role of mentors and gaining a third party perspective. You know, so I, um, I'm going to give a cop out here and I'm going to say both and column A and column B. And, and it depends. I think in different seasons of our life, we've got to lean more heavily on, you know, the, the gifts that we came with. And then in different seasons of our life, particularly when the organization outgrows us, we have an occasion to, to stretch beyond that, to reflect on our, you know, our, our strengths, but also, you know, to what extent our habits are starting to get in our way as the organization has gotten bigger and bigger around us, how, what, what, what do we need to unlearn and, or what skills do we need to now apply? So I, I I'm going to go with both and I, I apologize in advance for copping out in that way. Yeah. Well, I don't feel like it's a cop out at all. I really appreciate your thoughts on the subject as well as pulling in some research that you've looked into, uh, into it as well. I have to say, uh, your, your stories, your journey, your insight uh, has just been so much fun to listen to and learn from. So thank you so much for taking your time with us today. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Nathan, for having me. In 1970, the psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi identified and named the state of flow, where a person is utterly absorbed in the task at hand, an optimal combination of focus, challenge, and activity. My sincere hope is that every person will experience flow at least once in their life, but hopefully it's something you can incorporate as a ritual, immersing in an activity you love and walking away refreshed. 
Tim Hamilton dedicates himself to this kind of work and encourages his team to seek the same kind of passion and focus. Even though Praxin is somewhat new on the fintech scene, I have no doubt they'll continue succeeding with a strategy like that. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Tim is a fountain of wisdom, humility, and sharp thinking. I love that he poured some of those qualities out for us on this episode. You'll find Tim's book recommendations in the show notes. They're all excellent. You've been listening to Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, a podcast produced and distributed by Z-Suite Technologies Incorporated, all rights reserved. I'm your host, Nathan Baumeister, the CEO and co-founder of Z-Suite Tech. The show is co-produced, written, and edited by Zach Garber. Sound engineering was done by Nathan Butler at Nimblewit Productions. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave us a review or share the episode. This helps other people to find our show. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. 